morning again. Um, so so it, was my, uh, it was my senior year in college. It was my senior year in college. Um, I had one elective that I still needed to take, and then, and then I, was, I, was, I was home free. Um, that, that was basically it. I had a couple of other classes I was taking, but, but th- those were all laid out. and They didn't seem to be too terribly difficult, so I wasn't worried. So, you know, se- senioritis had already set in, and I was just excited to be done, right? Excited to be out of college. Um, I... Uh, so, so, so for, for, my, for my elective, I had, I had always had some interest in psychology. I'd always had some interest in how the mind worked. And so I thought maybe a Psych 101 course would be, would be a lot of fun to take. You know, get in that, learn more about people. Ah, that's going to benefit me in the long run, right? And it's a 101 course. It's introductory, so it can't be too hard. So, uh, so, so, so I went into the course catalog and found it, Psych 101. Yep, sign me up. It worked in my, it fit into my schedule well. It's like, this is going to be great. Um, showed up for the first day of class, walked in like any good senior. I sat in the very back of the classroom, as far away from the professor as possible. Um, she passed out the, the syllabi and uh, kind of looked through it. It's like, ah, this, this isn't really what I was expecting from a Psychology 101 course. That's, uh, that's interesting. Um, she, she began talking about the semester and expectations, and all of it seemed very, um, very even more introductory than what I had expected. Reached the end of class, and uh, everyone dismissed. Um, professor actually called me down to the front of the class, which th- this is a fairly large classroom. I mean, we're, we're talking maybe 70-some-odd students in there. Professor called me down to, to the front of the classroom as, as I was leaving and said, you know, I was going over the students in the class, and I noticed you in the class. And I thought, oh, no, I'm in trouble. Um, and she proceeded to say, this isn't the right class for you. This, the, this, is, this is the class that all of the incoming students who didn't quite do well enough on their SATs or GR or, uh, or, or whatever, your ACTs, to get into class. This is the class that they all have to take to help them prepare and do well in college. This is what you do at the beginning of college, not at the end of your college degree. She said, so, so, I mean, if you want, you can go ahead and back out of this class. And, and the Psych 101 course that you wanted to take, the Introduction to Psychology, is actually a different number. Imagine that. It's like, but it's 101. That's what it's supposed to be, right? That's the way it always works. Um, it's actually a different course, so you can back out and take that course. And, and I said, well, am I allowed to stay in this course? She said, yeah. I said, okay. That sounds like an easy A. It's my senior year. Come on, don't don't judge. Don't judge. It's my senior year, and I have no regrets over taking that class, and it, it profited me in absolutely no way whatsoever. <laughs> now, the thing I want to talk about today is the exact opposite of that. You see, that, that was a psychology 101 course that in no way prepared me for anything, in no way had any application in my life immediately. It was totally useless to me at the time. The thing I want to talk about today is the exact opposite. I want to talk about Christianity 101 today. I want to talk about Christianity 101 today. This isn't a passage. The passage that we're looking at today, it's not a passage for varsity-level Christianity, right? This isn't a passage for super-Christians who, who just have it all together. This is, this is a passage that's for every believer, regardless of age, regardless of maturity. If you're a parent, then you need this today. If you're single, 
then you need this today. If you're a teenager, then you need this passage today. Because we're talking about Christianity 101. We're talking about the fundamentals to Christian living, right? We're talking today about how to live by the Spirit. How to live by the Spirit. We're going to kind of break the passage up into three major parts. We're going to look at the battle, and then we're going to look at the aftermath of the battle, and then finally we'll look at the strategy. But let's begin by reading the passage. We're looking today at Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open it up. Otherwise, it's up here. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would be with us this morning, God, as we, as we listen to your word. Father, I pray that your Spirit would be working in our presence, God, um, showing us, showing us what you have in this passage for us, God, rebe- revealing the beauty and the majesty of your Son, Lord, so that we can worship more holy. God, please just be with us this morning. I pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So our passage today then picks up with Paul's discussion about the Christian life and the Spirit. The churches in Galatia had been infiltrated by outsiders who, who had embraced Jesus as Messiah, but not just Jesus as Messiah. They, they had embraced Jesus plus, plus continuing to fulfill the obligations of the law of Moses, which included things like dietary restrictions and circumcision and, and such. Paul then has taken pains to show over and over throughout this letter that the false teachers, the Judaizers, that they are in error. Through faith and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, believers have entered into a new era where they are no longer under the law and the covenant. But this has led to a vexing question for the Galatian believers. If they're no longer under the law, then how are they to live? Or maybe more pressing for us today, how now shall we live, right? Paul begins his description of the Christian life in verses 16 to 17 where he says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the the sinful nature, or most translations, of the flesh. For, For the sinful nature or the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh or sinful nature. 
They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. As we delve into our passage then, one of the immediate questions that that comes to the surface is, what does Paul mean here by the word flesh in verses 16 to 17? The Greek word behind this English is sarks, and it can be used in a broad variety of ways. Paul typically packs in the theological meaning with sarks. Though it can refer to actual body, to your actual physicality, that's not the way Paul typically uses it. Sometimes I think we fall into the trap of thinking of thinking that this refers to our body, though. Thinking that, that our bodies are bad. Thinking that somehow our bodies are holding us back. But that's not what we see God say in Genesis. Rather, he says that, that the world, that the creation, that our physicality is actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. So what does Paul mean then? Well, when Paul says it, he's referring to our sin nature that still continues to work in us. Um, New Testament scholar Douglas Moo affirms this and adds that it's kind of a reliance. It's a reliance on human effort as opposed to God. Tim Keller, the former pastor of Redeemer Church in New York, describes it as the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being as opposed to the God-desiring aspect. So it's our old nature that craves sin and rebels against the beauty of the Savior. Now, the flesh, this flesh that we're talking about is in conflict with the spirit. When it says spirit, it's not just referring, it's not referring to human spirit with a lowercase s. It's referring to the Holy Spirit, the second, or sorry, the third person of the Trinity. This is the spirit that indwells God's children now. We read about that back in Galatians chapter 4. And it's part of our future glorious inheritance, though we even get to enjoy the benefits and the fruit of it now. And as part of that future glorious inheritance, the Spirit even now is waging war on our sin nature that still continues to work at us. What then? What does this flesh want? What does this flesh want from us? Why does it continue to cling to our shoes? Like, like going out and stomping through, uh, stomping through mud. You get done in the mud, but you still have the muck that clings to your boots weighing you down. What is it that this flesh wants? Well, it says it has certain desires. This word uh, is translated in a variety of different ways, depending on the English translation you're looking at, because there's really no great way to translate it into English. It's actually the combination of two Greek words, epithumia, epa and thumas, which basically, well, literally means over-desire. It means it's an over-desire. The combination means something like, like it's an over-desire, The problem here being addressed isn't just that we have desires for some bad things. Rather, it's that we have an over-desire for anything, even good things. Even good things. We have an over-desire for them so that we place them superior and over God. And we desire good things and bad things over our Creator. The flesh takes our desires for love and for satisfaction and meaning and significance and turns them into over-desires. We try to fill them by something other than God. And this is the essence of idolatry. These are the desires of the old nature. We were created with certain desires and to have them met and filled by God and by his beauty and majesty. But the flesh redirects our gaze off of the Savior to anything else. 
So we have these two natures then that are battling within us. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, he, he, he described it as, we, it's like we have these two dogs that are fighting and biting and going back and forth within us, vying for control. Martin Luther, Martin Luther, the uh, 16th century pastor and reformer, he described it in a fancier way because he said it in Latin. He, he said, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and sinful. Again, you have these two things battling within you. It's almost like, it's almost like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? You guys familiar with that story? Um, Do- Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll begins taking a potion that turns him into, and he's a nice, he's a gentle man, but he begins taking this, this um, chemical, this elixir, and it turns him into the evil Mr. Hyde. And he goes back and forth between these two natures over the course of the story. It's similar to that, except he goes back and forth. We actually have these two things battling within us always. This is the nature of the battle waging within every Christian. Paul then goes on in the following verses to give us a glimpse of the aftermath of the battle. What are the results that we see coming out of this battle between spirit and flesh? Paul provides us with two lists, one of vices and one of virtues. Right? There's no priority given as we begin to look at the vice list. There's no priority given. There's no order of importance as we look through these things. Um, but, but, but one observation, some of them, some of the things that we see, some of them are actions, while others of them are just attitudes, right? And some of them, some of them might be outside of the, uh, of the normal churchgoer's experience, but all of them, all of them are applicable in some way to us. And all our heinous, gruesome actions of a nature that despises God. So let's look at these vices. Though they're not apparently in any sort of order, I'll kind of group some of them together just to make it, more, just to make it easier as we look through them. The first three deal with sexual sins. They deal with sexual sins. We have sexual immorality, which refers generally to intercourse outside of marriage. We have impurity, which refers to unnatural sexual practices and relationships. We have debauchery, which here is uncontrolled sexuality. Christianity doesn't take a prudish view to sex. Rather, rather it holds sex up as being a good and glorious thing, which is why Christianity, which is why God protects it and us by putting it within the bounds of marriage. There's a proper place for it, and our sin hates that. Our flesh hates to keep things in their proper places because it wants to ruin and to destroy. The second grouping deals with religion, deals with different sorts of religions. We look specifically at idolatry and witchcraft. Both of these are referring to practices of the occult, practices of the occult and the desire to raise up substitute gods or the desire to manipulate the world around us through a supernatural means instead of trusting in an all-sovereign God who is providentially over all things. The third group deals more specifically with relationships and things that divide community and relationships. Hatred. Hatred refers broadly to hostility and conflict. Discord refers to being argumentative. Jealousy is wanting what belongs to another. Fits of rage is uncontrolled temper that pushes others away. Um, selfish ambition is self-promotion that puts yourself over others and the good, the, good um, the good of the many. 
Dissensions are actions that attempt to divide the community. Factions, similar to dissensions, divide the community, but more with a partisan spirit. And envy is similar to greed and coveting others' things and their successes. And then the last, the last category deal with indulgences, right? Drunkenness and orgies. Orgies here looking specifically at, at drinking orgies. But both point towards addiction and towards substance abuse. Notice then, as we get to the end of verse 21, Paul gives this warning. He says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, live like this is also sometimes translated practice such things. Those who practice such things. So this doesn't mean occasional acts or even brief seasons. It's referring to regular, sustained engagement in, a continued practice in these realms. Um, New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner writes this, the Christian life is not marked by perfection, but by war, right? We don't claim to be a perfect people. We claim to be a struggling people. This is being written to the Galatian church who are struggling with the whole host of sins, though Paul assumes that in general they are believers and children of God. Paul's point is that he wants the Galatian believers and us to consider that maybe, maybe if we have given over to the practice of such things and we are no longer struggling and we are no longer battling, then maybe we never had the Spirit to begin with. If the Spirit is in you, there will continue to be struggle and battling through the course of this life. Paul then goes on in verses 20, 22 to 23 to tell us what the Spirit does. What, what does the Spirit do? He gives us this list of virtues. Three observations before we begin this list. The first is that these are an effect of the Spirit. These are an effect of the Spirit. That's why Paul calls them the fruit of the Spirit. They are what the Spirit produces in us. Notice then, these aren't produced by us. It's not something that Stephen produces. It's something that the Spirit produces. So often we look at a list like this and we rightly go through it and we say, oh, patience, mm, not so great there. Love, ooh, I'm not. Okay, so I need to work harder at this. I, I, I just need to get my act together and really dig in and dig in my, and I'll, I'll get it, right? But the problem with that is, again, this isn't the, the, the list of the fruit of Stephen, and this, this isn't the list of the fruit of John or the fruit of Mary. This is the fruit of the Spirit. He's the one who does it, not you. I just bought some uh, apple trees. I just bought some apple trees about two months ago. And they, they had matured a little bit, so, so, so they had had their opportunity to, to kind of grow. And we, we, we transplanted them into our yard, and hopefully they'll survive this winter. I, I have my doubts, but I'm hoping that they'll survive this winter. Now, now if I take my, my apples that I bought from the grocery store and go out and tape them onto the apple tree, that... That, that doesn't make them the fruit of that apple tree, does it? And in fact, if those trees are dead, hopefully they're not, but if those trees are in fact dead, then, then that fruit that I just taped onto the apple tree will in, by no means make that tree alive, right? I need to wait, and I need to be patient, and I need to see if hopefully that tree produces fruit on its own. This is the fruit produced by the Spirit that we're looking at. The second thing is that the fruit is inevitable. 
It's part of God's promise to us. If you are a child of God, then you will have fruit in your life because you have the Spirit. And the Spirit is not okay. The Spirit is not okay with being lazy. The Spirit is productive. He works this fruit in our lives. We can trust him. To be able to look at this list and to trust that God is doing this in us when we don't even see it is a glorious thing for us as believers. To be able to look at this and be able to trust this is what God is going to be doing in my life over the long haul. That should bring joy into our hearts. We need to trust God as the great, to, to do the great horticultural work that our lives need. And third, third, Jonathan Edwards, 18th century preacher and scholar, he wrote this, uh, looking at the fruit of the Spirit. He wrote that there is, a, there is a concatenation of graces in Christianity. There is a concatenation of uh, graces in Christianity. I don't truly know what that means, but it sounds profound, right? There, there is a concatenation. I, I think it means something like the, there is a singularity. There is a singularity and a symmetry to the fruit of the Spirit. Paul here contrasts the works of the flesh, notice that it's plural, with the fruit of the Spirit. It's singular. Now, in Greek, you actually can make fruit plural. You actually can, but Paul chose to leave it as singular, and I think he did that for a reason. The fruit is not like spiritual gifts where, where, where you can have one or two, but, not, but you don't necessarily have all of them. Rather, with the fruit of the Spirit, you have them all because there's a singularity. This is a product of the Spirit in us. On a related note then, if we see one disproportionately developed, it should raise questions about whether or not it's truly a fruit of the Spirit, right? If one doesn't match the others because it's way up here and all the others are way down here, there's probably an issue. That doesn't make sense. This is the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's possible that that one that we thought was way up here, maybe it's really more the result of a natural temperament, right? Maybe what you thought was spirit-wrought patience is really just indifference. It's really just maybe even laziness. Maybe it's, maybe it's passivity. Maybe it's some other thing, but it's not actually patience. On the same line, the same line of thought then, maybe it's even a counterfeit sin masquerading itself as a fruit, right? If we see one out of proportion to the others, there's probably an issue with that as well. All right, let's jump in to verse 22 then, the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love referring to a sacrificial service for the good of others. Joy. Joy refers to a, a delight in God for His beauty. Peace is confidently resting in God's control. Patience is an ability to face trouble without lashing out. Kindness is acting in hospitality or generosity. Goodness is acting with integrity in all situations. And faithfulness is acting in such a way that's reliable and dependable. There's a significant amount of overlap in these things. And that's for a reason. Because remember, it's singular, right? Gentleness, taking care not to unnecessarily harm someone, either with actions or with words. And self-control, the ability to pursue the important over the urgent in contrast to impulsivity. These then are the fallout from the battle of the spirit with the flesh. These are the results of these two principles, waging war and the spirit winning in your life as it produces fruit. But we still haven't really addressed the question of how to, verse 16, 
live by the Spirit. Or verse 18, be led by the Spirit. When we see these expressions, instead of looking at our passage more closely, we often read into them, letting, read into them notions like letting the Spirit kind of supernaturally guide us. We apply it to situations like who should I marry and, and where should I work and where should I live? I don't, I don't know, just let the Spirit lead. Um, but I, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about in this passage. I don't think that's what he's referring to. Look at verses 24 to 26 where he provides a strategy, where he provides a strategy to how to live by the Spirit. There, there are three things as we look through these next couple of verses. The first thing is, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Paul writes, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Your sinful nature, the, the flesh, has already been crucified. It has already been crucified. In other words, when you trusted in Christ and you put your faith in him and in his death and in his resurrection, your old nature was, was affixed to Christ and to what he did back when he hung on the cross. When you put your faith in him, he, you, you're handing your flesh over to what he had already done for you. He bore the sin of your old nature already. The gospel has already dealt with your flesh. Not only did the gospel deal with your flesh, but it's also provided you a new identity. You belong to Christ. Earlier at the end of chapter 3, Paul declared that we have been united to him. We have been united to him. It is in this new union with him that we can take confidence. Right? It is out of this union that we become children of God. We are declared to be his sons. He loves us. He declares his banner over us. We have a new identity now. Right? He, he is our everything, and he sees fit to delight in us. We are called to remember the gospel. That's point number one of our strategy. Point number two, we are called to keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 25. Paul states that if we live by the Spirit, we must keep in step with the Spirit. But what does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? Keep in step comes from the word stoicheo, which is, uh, it comes out of a military context where, troop, where troops were expected to line up with one another. So the word includes denotations of moving, but also more specifically, aligning to an external authority or standard. So to live by the Spirit is to align to the things that he aligns to. Paul, Paul fills this out a little bit more in Romans chapter 8, verse 4. He writes there, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To keep in step with the Spirit is to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. But what does the Spirit align with? What is it that we should be focused on? John helps us out with this answer. He looks at, we look at John 15, verse 26. When the counselor comes, the counselor here is referring to the Spirit. When the counselor comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father... He will testify about me, that me is Jesus Christ. The Spirit, the Spirit is concerned. The Spirit's, one of the Spirit's primary functions is to testify about the Son. 
But when he, John 16, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me. Again, Jesus Christ, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. The spirit is aligned towards the things of Christ The Spirit glorifies Jesus and the Spirit dwells in us to set our minds and our hearts on knowing and delighting and loving and in living out the things of Christ. John 15, 4-5, remain in me, this is Jesus, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Does that sound familiar? No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We are to ardently pursue Christ, knowing and delighting in him. First, and foremost, it is all about Christ and knowing him. Then it is out of our relationship with him, it is out of keeping in step with the Spirit, that we will bear much fruit. We need to stop trying to do it apart from him and turn our eyes toward Jesus. And as the Spirit opens our eyes to see Christ as he truly is in all of his beauty, we will begin to see the desires of the flesh as they truly are as thin and mealy and weak and insignificant and uncompelling because that's what they truly are. That luster will begin to diminish, but the beauty, but his beauty will be magnified in us. There's an old hymn called, Has Thou Heard Him, Seen Him, Known Him? It's written in the mid-1800s by Ora Rowan. I love this line, and I think it captures this thought. What has stripped the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but a sight of peerless worth. And then then the chorus. Captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now unrivaled king. Crown him now unrivaled king. It It is the beauty of our Savior that drives out the idols in our lives. As we fix on him, as we stare into him, as we gaze and behold his beauty, it drives out everything else. It is like the Spirit is doing a great cataract surgery on us, removing the haziness so that we can see Christ as he truly is. Point number three, we must fight against the flesh and its desires. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking or envying each other. We are called to fight against conceit or pride, the root desire of the flesh, seeking out its own glory. When we remember the gospel and keep in step with the Spirit, we can expect victory as we engage in the fight against the flesh. And that's what it said back in verse 16. The result Back in 16, the result of living by the Spirit is that you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
This isn't a call towards passivity. We don't sit back and do nothing, expecting, expecting the Spirit to just work magically in our lives while we sit on our couches and eat our potato chips while watching TV. That's not, that's not what this is a call to. This is a call to fight and to engage, right? Just because you have the Spirit doesn't mean you don't battle. Rather, it means you battle differently. The Spirit empowers you to fight all the harder. It gives you the vigor to, to fight, but it also gives you the direction in how to fight. Or as Paul described it in Romans 8, verse 13, for if you live according to the sinful nature, then you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, then you will live. Going back to the description of Spurgeon's two dogs battling and biting and having it out within you, one of Spurgeon's students asked him, well, Dr. Spurgeon, who wins the fight then? Who wins the fight? Spurgeon responded, the dog that wins is the dog that you feed. We need to feed that dog at work within us. We need to feed that spirit on the beauty of the Savior by fixating on him and by abiding in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. God, I thank you for the Spirit who's working in us, battling. God, I pray that we would not grow lazy and sullen, Father, but that we would be hopeful and rejoicing and fighting all the harder because of your Spirit who is at work within us. God, I pray that you would do mighty things, Lord, that you would produce fruit in abundance in our lives, God, and Lord, that your Son would get the glory for it. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Just uh, as we prepare to leave, we'll have some um, elders standing up here at the front. Of the, uh, at the, at the front if you want prayer. Um, let's close with this, though. Jude 24 to 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.